Cool. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we're going to be diving back into the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And why don't we just open with a word of prayer. Jesus, we just come before you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we love the word because it leads us to you. The written word leading us to the living word. The living word. And uh, Jesus, we ask this morning that you would just give us your church a spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's our desire to know you better, uh, to uh, serve you more, uh, to walk in the things of your spirit. And so, uh, Jesus, we, we need your spirit to just uh, fall upon this time, to take uh, this written word and make it alive unto our hearts. And so, Father, we just, uh, we just surrender our hearts to you right now. I just pray, God, that even in this moment that you'd quiet each one of our, our hearts, that you'd quiet our minds, that um, we would be in that place where our heart is open and ready to receive the seed of your word and that which your spirit would say. And so, Lord, we, we give you this time. Uh, we surrender this time to you. We, we pray that you'd make it yours, Lord and uh, that you'd give each one of us exactly what we need today. And so, Lord, we just uh, commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, wow, it's been a pretty significant break since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew and this series. And we're going to dive right back into uh, chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We've actually already spent three Sundays looking at chapter 5. I don't do that very often. And originally, when I was preparing to teach this chapter, I actually thought that I'd pull it off in one message. That's right, it's a joke. Because uh, this is part four, and I guess the joke was on me. So uh, we're going to, uh, let, me, let me just remind you where we've been as we begin to dive back in here, uh, where we've left off, because it's important, uh, as we've been touching on each chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, just to remind ourselves of the theme and what the writer is seeking to accomplish for us, because it's, th- it's woven right through the whole story of the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew sets its theme on revealing Jesus as king. It sets its theme on the announcement of the coming of his kingdom. And we've seen that as we've gone through this series. And in particular, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the section where Jesus shares what I've called the kingdom manifesto. This is where he declares the values of his kingdom. This, in a sense, is the constitution of the kingdom. It's the laws and the rules that he has set in place over his subject. And this manifesto uh, where Jesus sat down on the mountain and he began to give this teaching to his disciples and all who came to him, uh, in it reveals that he reveals that as he is announcing himself as king, that he is firstly a king over the hearts of men and women. And so at this point in the Sermon on the Mount where we're going to pick it up, which is at verse 21 in a few moments here, uh, Jesus is teaching on the subject of righteousness. Now, I want to pause there for a second because we kind of left off right here and give us a little bit of a definition of righteousness because righteousness is a big churchy word, isn't it? It's kind of feels a little bit mysterious and out there. And we want to say, what does that mean? Well, it's important that we have a sense of what it means before we head into this section of scripture. And so I want to give it a really simple definition that I shared with you five weeks ago. And it's this, that righteousness is conformity to a certain set of expectations. Righteousness is conformity to a certain set of expectations. In marriage, there's expectations between a husband and wife. 
Hey, it's warm in here, isn't it? Can somebody open the back door? I would appreciate that. That's awesome. Uh, in marriage, there are certain expectations with children and their parents. There's expectations that parents put on that relationship. Righteousness means to conform to the expectation. Employers have expectations of their employees. Citizens and government share expectations of one another. And righteousness, to be righteous, means to fulfill the expectations within the relationship. And as Jesus announces himself as king, as he announces the coming of his kingdom, as he announces the rule of his kingdom over the hearts of men, he says, I'm going to tell you that there is a certain standard of righteousness that I am establishing there's expectations that I am placing upon the citizens of my kingdom. Now where we left off in our series was Jesus talking about the righteousness of the Pharisees. I don't know if you happen to remember that, but Jesus said this about the Pharisees. I tell you that unless your righteousness, verse 20, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so as Jesus begins to talk about the righteous standards that he's going to establish for his kingdom, he begins to point to the righteous standards that some other people have, and it's that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had certain expectations of what it looked like to live for God, what it looked like to have a holy life. And Jesus had certain ex <laughs> Dogs are barking. Um, Jesus had certain expectations of what righteousness looked like in his kingdom. The deal was, what we're going to see here, that it was oil and water. The two didn't mesh. They didn't meet. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they appeared to be the most holy and righteous people. They appeared to be outstanding in the practice of the law. They appeared to be the ideal of virtue and holiness. The average person looked at the Pharisees and said, man, if that's what holiness is, I have no chance. Well, Jesus lays it down when he says our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so what we're going to see as we go on in this text in Matthew chapter 5 is that Jesus is going to share teaching about righteousness and he's going to contrast his idea of righteousness to the idea of the, the Pharisees' idea of righteousness. And so let's pause and just for a moment remember the Pharisee. These were men who had external righteousness. They not only said it, but they did it. The problem was that when you read the gospel accounts, if there was something that ticked Jesus off, if there's one thing that just sent him over the edge and brought out uh, his anger, it was uh, the Pharisees. See, with the Pharisees, religious form had blinded them from heart transformation they were the hypocrite, hypocrites of the worst kind. That's what I call them. Hypocrites of the worst kind because they were unconscious that there was no difference between their own hearts and what they were doing on the outside. They, they, they followed God's law or they sought to follow God's law and yet they failed to let it touch their hearts. And so their religion was entirely external and it was formal. It did not touch the heart. And God knows our hearts. He, it, Jesus said about the about the um, Pharisees, he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. God knows what's in your heart. And I, I mentioned this last time, but I, I think about that, and I, I, I just have to say that, you know, apart from Jesus, I'd be mortified to tell you what goes on in my heart. The things that it thinks and conceives and dreams up. 
And the Pharisees were able to separate the outside from the inside. There was, there was no congruity between the two. And their religion was one that really got to this place where it revolved around themselves. Their traditions caused them to focus on themselves. They focused on their own righteousness. It had nothing to do with God and everything to do with themselves. And their religion, the focus of their worship had become themselves, not the Lord. As they went about the practice of their religious duties, they thought about themselves. They thought about their performance, not the glory of God. And there was no worship in the lives of the Pharisees. Self-satisfied and self-focused. And sometimes we are guilty of the same thing. We turn a relationship with the Lord into a religion that consists of certain things that we've chosen to do or not to do. And when we do what we've chosen to do or not to do, uh, we settle into this smug attitude of self-righteousness and self-satisfaction. Those attitudes give, give birth to the heart of the Pharisee within us where we, th- we look at ourselves and we say, I'm better than other people. I'm superior to those around me. And as Christ followers, a disciple of Jesus, we are, as we've seen throughout this series, I would encourage you, you can go back and, and listen. All the messages are online on the church website. The test of our authenticity is the Beatitudes, that we go through that list and we weigh our lives there. And the Pharisees, when we think of them, were men who were more interested in details than they were principles. They were more interested in the actions than the motive of the action. They were interested in doing rather than being. And in the kingdom of God, it is the principle, not the action that matters. What you think, what you desire, the condition of your heart, those things matter to Jesus. And Jesus wants to bring us to that place where there is greater and greater dependency upon him in our lives. And so as we dive in here, Jesus is going to make a comparison between the teaching of the Pharisee and the values of his kingdom. And in fact, he's going to make six specific comparisons. Six times Jesus will say this. He will say, you you have heard it said. Referring to the teaching of the Pharisee. Not referring to what the scripture declares, but referring to the teaching of the Pharisee. You have heard it said, and then six times he will say, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. And he's introducing the righteous standards of his kingdom in comparison to the righteous demands of the Pharisee. So so as I was studying this, here's what I sense the Holy Spirit wanted to do this morning. I sense that the Lord wanted me to just grab the six authoritative sayings of Jesus and the thoughts surrounding each one of them, the six principles of righteousness that are to be a part of the kingdom program, that this is the sovereign strategy of Jesus for his people, the standards of righteousness that he has set for us. I would say this, and it's important we don't make this mistake this morning. Doing these things won't save you. Only Jesus saves. Amen? Amen. Only Jesus saves. But these, these are the standards Jesus has, has uh, set for us. And living according to these principles that he lays out are part of living in the kingdom. This is what the kingdom life looks like. 
So we're not going to try and turn over every stone. We're going to just try and grab the big themes this morning. And so let's check it out. Verse 21. Here's the first time. You have heard that it was said of those of old. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you got a pen, that is worth underlining all six times as we go through here. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Sorry, until you have paid the last penny. First principle of righteousness is this. Deal with the heart of the matter. Deal with the heart of the matter. See, in the kingdom of our Lord, the heart matters. Our heart matters to Jesus. In fact, matters of the heart are foremost. All of life comes from the outflow of the heart. The heart, said Solomon, is the wellspring of life. That means that the heart is the source of what comes forth from my life. That's why in dealing with matters of the heart, it's pr- this matters of the heart are principle uh, numero uno, number one in the kingdom of God. The heart is number one. Like, uh, what's the, what's the uh, Nacho Libre? I love that movie. He says, Ramses is number one. <laughs> no, the heart is number one in the kingdom of God. And so that's where we start. Where does murder come from? The heart. Where does anger come from? The heart. Where do the insults of my lips come from that would call someone a fool? The heart. I mean, you don't call someone a fool unless you think it in your heart. The mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And Jesus says, when you call someone a fool, check this, we kindle the fire of our own place in hell. I don't know about you, but it's easy to skim over that in my Bible reading. I, I, I think I've had the tendency to do that. But Jesus says, if you, if you call someone a fool, you are kindling your own place in the fire of hell. And I got to say, over the years, I've stoked a big fire, a pretty big fire. You know, for if any reason, you know, you believe, you happen to believe that, you know, you've earned your place and glory at the right hand of Jesus, a throne beside his, this one should bring you down to earth. If you call him a fool, anyone, you've kindled your spot in hell. And I would say this, that that Jesus is wanting us to recognize the severity with which the Lord judges the thoughts and intents of our heart. Well, I thought I just needed to like separate my mint and my rue and make sure I give my 10%. Jesus gets down to the heart with severity. The Pharisees looked so righteous on the outside and yet the Pharisee was blind to the fact that though the outside of the cup might be clean, the inside of the cup was filthy. 
And Jesus says you need to wash the inside of the cup. And what Jesus is telling us is that in the kingdom of God, we must take serious the matters of our heart. You know, which is tough. If I scan the room, you know, I, I, I don't think we have any murderers in the house this morning. I, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. You might want to double check who you're sitting beside, whatever. But um, I know this. In regards to anger, or in t- regards to the insults that come from our lips, I safely suspect that none of us escapes the inspection of the Spirit of God should he search our hearts right now in this moment. Jeremiah said this of the human heart, that it is deceitful above all things and that it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, the truth is, is I don't understand my own heart. The things that motivate my heart, but The scripture goes on to say, Jeremiah goes on to say in Jeremiah chapter 17, that God searches the heart, that God knows the heart, that God tests the mind, and that he gives to a man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. To me, that's a scary thing. And the truth of the matter is that for each of us, just the thoughts of our hearts, I mean, think about it. Just the thoughts of your heart is enough to condemn you to hell. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's why we need Jesus to save us from our sin. That's why we need Jesus to save us from ourselves. That's why we count on the name of Jesus. That's why we ask him to to give us his righteousness. We count on Jesus Because we believe in the salvation that Jesus gives. That's what we count on, not our own hearts. But because we count on Jesus, we take serious the things that he takes serious. We take serious the reality of his kingdom and he is calling us to take serious the matters of our own heart. God, change my heart. God, give me a heart after you. God, soften my heart. God, fill my heart with your word. If there be anything, Lord, in my heart that comes between you and I, search it out, Jesus, and make it clean. Jesus even says, if if you come to the house of God and, and you remember that there's something between your brother and you, then make it right. Make it right. Deal with the heart of the matter. That's what he is saying. And I would say this, I, I know none of us is perfect in this principle of dealing with the heart. Only one is perfect. Only God is perfect. We sang that song, Good, Good Father, last week. I love that. You're perfect in all of your ways. Only one is perfect, but the principle we are called to live by is this, is deal with the heart of the matter. Check out verse 27. You have heard it said that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, there it is, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. 
Well, I hear the teaching of Jesus here, and I think we can all see it. He is redefining for us how we would define sexual sin. It's not just the act of adultery or whatever one we want to list in the list of sexual sins. Pick your poison. But what's he pointing out? The attitude of the heart that is behind that. The look of the eye. And it's convicting. It's powerful what he says here. If you look, you're guilty as if you committed the act. And I think about our culture. We lived in a, in a sexually charged culture. I, I don't think that there is a person anywhere that can escape what Jesus says right here in these verses. But I actually think that this is not so much about adultery as it is about the second principle of righteousness in the kingdom of God. And so here it is. The second principle in God's kingdom. Take serious measures with your sin. Yes, yeah, sin starts in the heart. Each person is lured and enticed by their own desire. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, James says, gives birth to death. There's that old saying, I love it. Sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. There comes a time in each one of our lives, even when we've been following Jesus for maybe a long time, where it's easy to grow comfortable with sin. When we allow ourselves the pleasure of participating. Maybe earlier in our walk with God, we never would have entertained such thoughts or such actions. Or, or maybe just in a sense of defeat of not being able to ever find victory over some issue of sin, we, we settle into this relationship of comfort with our sin where we decide we're going to coexist with one another. It's all cool. Jesus just, he's just going to gloss his eyes over this one. You know, I see what Jesus says here. No, no one commits adultery or whatever sexual sin you want to put in the blank. Uh, no one just goes there. There's a pathway of decisions that happen first that ends up, uh, that, that lead a person to that place. You know, Solomon talks in Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, awesome, awesome passages of scripture worthy of study. Shares warning about adultery and he says this, that a man who does so destroys himself. Solomon actually said it's the pathway of hell. That a man cannot put fire in next to his chest without being burned. And, and Jesus is saying this. The righteous principle of the kingdom of God is to take serious measures with your sin. You don't play with sin. You don't play with fire. You don't put fire in your lap. And so Jesus says something incredible. It's crazy. If it's your eye, gouge it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. It's better to you, for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Now, of course, we know this. He's not literally saying, do these things. What's he saying? Take serious issues of sin. Don't mess around. You know the greatest way to find victory over sin? Is to bring it into the light. Satan loves to isolate. Satan loves to isolate the people of God, drive individuals into isolation, and fire the darts of his lies. No one's as evil as you. 
boy, if they only knew what you were involved in. You know, whatever he fires, you know, no one struggles like you do. Wow. And he locks us into his lies. And the way to break the power of his lies is through confession of sin to a brother or sister in the Lord. You know, I would tell you this, that if someone should ever come to you and just want to confess something, you should never be shocked. You should never be shocked. You should never give them, how could you? How, I, people, you know, you should never be shocked because here's the truth. Sinners sin. I don't know if you figured that out yet. <laughs> it comes kind of natural to us. We sin. We sin. I am a sinner and I sin. There, I said it. Ooh. <laughs> but I want to tell you that there's a trustworthy saying that is deserving of your full acceptance. Are you ready for it? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. I'm the chief. You know, there's incredible freedom in owning the statement of Paul and saying, I'm, I'm the one, man. I'm the boss. I'm the chief. I'm the foremost of sinners. And I throw my life on you, Jesus, and I ask you to save me from myself. Save me from my sin. I accept, Jesus, that you came into the world to save sinners and I'm asking you to save me. Don't make a friendship with your sin. The path that leads to death is wide. So take serious measures with your sin. And the truth is, none of us is perfect in dealing with our sin because there's only one that's perfect. And he perfectly dealt with sin on the cross of Calvary. So go to him with your sin. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know the subtitle of my Bible, I'm sure exactly all of our Bibles are exactly said the, the, uh, the same, that the subtitle just says divorce. And it's true, it's good that it's there, but sometimes I just think that those titles take you off track from what Jesus is actually saying. And, and in fact, I might ask this, is Jesus talking about divorce here? Or is he talking about marriage? I, I happen to believe that he's more focused on marriage than he's focused on divorce. In fact, I believe that's the third principle of the kingdom of heaven. It's this, value the sanctity of marriage. Value the sanctity of marriage. See, the Pharisees promoted a culture of easy escapism from marriage. When it becomes inconvenient, man, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, done. Move on. I think within the church, you know, today, for those who have been through a divorce, um, I need to say this because I think that it's important that you hear this. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Though, you know, for many generations, we, taught, we, we, we treated it that way in the church. But, so there's a reason why Jesus talks about divorce here. Because it happens. It happens. 
But I actually believe that Jesus is not promoting and I, I believe that he's not giving allowance for divorce as much as he is promoting the blessing of marriage here as he speaks. For two people that love Jesus who are married, you know, divorce should not even be in your vocabulary. It's not an option to take it off the table. Gone. Sweep it off the table. And I know that as I say that, some of you may be playing scenarios through your head that in your mind, you know, causes you to have a negative reaction to what I even said right there. But let me clarify something that I said from the start here as we got into this a passage of scripture this morning. And that's this, that I was going to share principles of righteousness in the kingdom. There isn't time to turn over every stone and every story that we're all acquainted with. Whatever those stories are, do not negate the fact that in the kingdom of God, a standard of righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ set is the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is his design. Marriage is a founding principle of his kingdom. Marriage is his creation. Marriage is a covenant between a man and and a woman that involves the creator of the universe. He sanctified it. You and I don't get to make the rules. We don't. And Jesus values marriage. And Jesus values your marriage. I actually happen to think that one of the greatest sources of problems in Christian marriages is this, that believers often put such expectations on their spouse that they just begin to crush them. The Christians make the mistake of worshiping their spouse, expecting their partner to meet needs that only Jesus Christ can meet. We put the weight of glory on our spouse and we put on them the weight of something they're not designed to carry and that's our worship. Because there's only one that's worthy of our worship. There's only one glorious enough to carry and hold the weight of worship. And often we crush and destroy our own marriages by putting too much expectation on our spouses. Only Jesus can carry the weight of glory. Only Jesus is worthy of your worship. As husbands and wives, if you worship Jesus first, I'll tell you what, you have a beautiful marriage. I promise you. It won't be perfect. I didn't say it would be perfect, okay? You're not married to my wife. It's not going to be perfect, okay? But if you both worship Jesus and Jesus comes first, you pursue him first, when a husband and wife make that decision, I'm going to follow Jesus first and I'm going to love you second, You will have a healthy marriage. God will bless your home. He will bless the union. Not perfect. (laughs) Only one is perfect, right? Only one is perfect. You know, me as a husband, I got a bad, you know, I got bad habits. Leave my laundry laying on the floor sometimes, you know. Don't clean up my tools when I've been working around the house, you know. My wife, I was doing stuff around the house. I haven't even, she's not perfect either. I haven't even like finished the task that I'm working on and she's like talking about the next task and I'm like, I was getting angry at her. Like, stop it! Leave me alone! I'm trying to work here, you know? Other than that, she's pretty well perfect, but almost. See, this section of scriptures is not about justifying what justifies a divorce. It's about Jesus saying that he loves marriage and in his kingdom we should value marriage. That we should love and honor marriage as well. 
So I got to ask you, how about you? Are you missing the mark of God's design somewhere? Make it right. Make it right and honor that which Jesus chose to honor, the sanctity of marriage. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard it said, sorry, again you have heard it that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, there it is, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your, your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, or you can't make it grow either, unfortunately. Verse 37, then what you, let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Fourth principle of righteousness in the kingdom of God is this, simplicity in your speech. A yes is a yes and a no is a no. It's an amazing thing, right? It seems so simple. It's a value that God has established in his kingdom. It's the way that we speak, not only to one another, but to everyone. We don't use flattery, buttery speech to manipulate a situation or to manipulate a, a scenario to meet our own ends. We're, we don't lie. We don't need to swear on our mother's grave or anything else. Our mouths are an expression of our heart. And that's to be a place where Jesus rules and reigns, a place of integrity, of honesty, morality, consistency. And the consistency should express itself in the things that we say. The consistency of our character. That means when we say we're going to do something, we do it. We mean it. Because our lives are to be consistent. And therefore, we don't have to resort to taking oaths. I swear, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. We don't have to resort to that. It's hard. You know, we all do it. Sometimes we say things and we have the best of intentions. We want to do it and we fail to follow through. You know, and in the kingdom of God, we're, we're, what Jesus is calling to us is to put thought to our speech. To reign in the tongue at times. Adjust our speech towards a, a simplicity. I actually think that it, as, as you mature in Jesus, your speech should adjust to a simplicity that is the sign of maturity that just says yes, and it's a yes, and no, it's a no. We don't have to speak cryptically. We speak the truth in love. You know, I found that if I adjust my speech with thought and care, <laughs> almost tripped over the word care so I well thought out my speech. Uh, if I adjust my speech with thought and care and simplicity, it makes it easier for me to follow through with my actions. Not perfect though. Boy, I tell you, not perfect. Because only one is perfect. Jesus. Look at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow for you. This is about dealings with people. And de- people are tough to deal with, aren't they? We all know that. Uh, the fifth principle of righteousness is this though. In your dealings with people, go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. It's a biblical saying. Go the extra mile. It's not easy to go the extra mile with people. You know what some people need is a swift kick in the rear end. What did you think I was going to say? Others need a taste of humble pie. You know some people need a slap in the face it feels like sometimes, doesn't it? But the principle of King Jesus is this, that in your, when you deal with people, go the extra mile. Give the benefit of the doubt. You know when someone goes the extra mile, uh, it, it's, it's as though they're communicating without words. It doesn't say you have to talk while you go the extra mile. Just go the extra mile. And you know what I mean. We all have people or experienced situation in our lives where we felt where, that they just went over and above, man. They went beyond the call of duty. They, they exceeded our expectation. And, and when someone does that in your life, it's such a blessing, isn't it? You just think, wow. Wow, thank you, God. That was, wow, that, I wasn't expecting that. And that's the kind of blessing Jesus wants us to be as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The type of blessing that inspires others to ask, ask, what is going on with that guy? What motivates that woman? Why, why do they act like that? Why do they talk like that? Why do they live like that? Why are they going the extra mile with me? Man, I deserved a kick in the rear end. You know, some people are graded. It's easy to go the extra mile for them. But making, you know, the effort to go the extra mile for the tough person, boy, that's, that's not easy, is it? They're tough, you know, they're just nasty. And it's then that when you're dealing with someone and you're thinking about that and you're thinking, do I really want to go the extra mile with this person? No, I don't. It's then that we do well to remember that Jesus does not pass on principles of righteousness to us that he did not demand of himself. He not only calls me to go the extra mile, but I would say this, Jesus went the extra mile, wouldn't you? In in, in fact, I I mean, that is like the biggest understatement ever. He did that very thing for us. I I think that you and I are accounted amongst those whom it must not have been easy to go the extra mile for. But he chose to. He he, he went to the cross. He, He went the extra mile to the grandest of proportions. I mean, he, he did it for you and I. And so in, the, in your dealings with people, go the extra mile. That's the standard. And we're not perfect at it, are we? We drop the ball with it sometime because only one is perfect. Jesus perfectly went the extra mile. How about verse 43? Last principle of righteousness. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, 
What more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Here's the sixth principle of righteousness. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. The founding principle in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus calls us to as his followers. When I think of love your enemy, I can't help but think what's going on in our world right now. It's just like, feels like chaos everywhere. People doing all sorts of acts of terrorism and awful things. Uh, it seems like there are many enemies in the world. The natural response is this, hate your enemy. But as Jesus so often does in his kingdom, he calls us not to respond naturally, but supernaturally. That's what I really believe about that statement. Love your enemy. In the natural, you cannot love your enemy. You can't. It can't be done. It's impossible. Love for your enemy must come from a supernatural source. It must come from the Lord Jesus. So how do we overcome? How do we overcome the natural and live supernaturally for the kingdom in regards to our enemies? And, and look, I would say this. When Jesus says, like, love your enemy, it's not, it's not some form of platitude. This is not an artificial confession of love. I, I just kind of watching our culture lately, and I, I listen to how some people respond to enemies. I, I, I think about the whole uh, terrorist stuff that's going on and the extremism. And, and I consider how some people are responding in their answer and in their desire to express love. And I go, you know, they're not realistic about their enemy. You know, in wanting to understand and find peace, it's like they have to let go of reality. They've let go of facts. They make statements that are like clearly devoid of logic or thought. And in a, in a desire to think the best of others, they, they won't call a spade a spade. They won't say, my enemy is my enemy. And they think that they're loving. They think that they're loving the enemy. The problem is, is this. They're trying to do so in the natural. That's why their answer doesn't make sense. They, they have to leave behind logic. They have to leave behind common sense. They have to leave behind facts so that they can manufacture something in their own hearts to say, my enemy is not my enemy. Loving an enemy, truly loving an enemy does not involve leaving behind logic or common sense or facts or reality. Loving your enemy must be sourced by a supernatural love that comes from God in your heart and in your life. And so the question is, is how do you overcome the natural to supernaturally love your enemy? What's the key? Well, Jesus gives us the key in this as he talks about love your enemy. The key is prayer. The key is prayer. He says pray for your enemy. You can't pray for your enemy and not have the Holy Spirit begin to touch your heart, to soften your heart, to birth in you a heart of love and compassion for their sake, on their behalf, to pray compassionately, to pray with love. Doesn't change the fact they're still an enemy. But, but prayer changes your heart towards your enemy. 
And maybe God will work and he'll change their heart as well. We all have enemies. You don't have to be around the world. They can live on your street. I don't know. They can live in your home. I hope not. But prayer changes our heart towards the enemy. The enemies. I think, wow, am I perfect at loving my enemies? No way. No chance. Only Jesus perfectly loves his enemies. Because he went to the cross. And loving your enemy is what it means to live like a child of the kingdom. Loving your enemy, Jesus says, is actually proof that you're God's sons and daughters. It's proof because you cannot love an enemy in the natural. Only when Jesus changes your heart. Love your enemy. The sixth righteous principle of the kingdom. So summary, summary of the matter, the conclusion. Look at verse 48. I find this is an amazing verse. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Whoa, Jesus, come on. (laughs) Seriously? Wait a minute, you know. uh, All these righteous principles, all of them that we've gone through, the heart matters, take serious measures with your sin, you know, value the sanctity of marriage, simplicity in your speech, going the extra mile, loving, loving your enemy, and all of these principles that, are, that you're founding for your kingdom, one thing is clear. One thing is clear as we go through them. That when my life is weighed, when your life is weighed against these principles, I am not perfect. I'm not perfect. And one thing becomes clearer and clearer as I weigh myself against these principles that only one is perfect. Jesus. Only my Father in heaven is perfect. And I would say this, if, if, if you understand that, then you understand what Jesus is saying. If you understand that, then you understand that which the Pharisees could not understand because of the hypocrisy in their lives. See, for the Pharisee, actions, morality, dividing the mint and the rue, counting the seeds, the length of your robe, those things revealed perfection. But they had it all wrong, didn't they? See, perfection here does not speak of morality or action, but of love. See, when Jesus calls us to perfection, he is calling us to love. God is love. God is perfect. Love is perfect. And when I choose to love Jesus and love people and live by the principles that he has established in his kingdom, then I reflect the perfect nature of the son of God who saved me. I reflect the nature of my perfect father in heaven. Though I'm not perfect, Jesus comes through and ministers to others. Six righteous principles of the kingdom. The heart matters. Take serious measures with your sin. 
Value the sanctity of marriage. Practice simplicity in your speech. Yes is yes. No is no. When you deal with people, go the extra mile and love your enemy. I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come.